Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's the end of the year, and in the U.S. at least, we're entering an election year. So a lot of us are probably thinking about money. After all, this is the time when we make our final tax-deductible donations, where maybe we buy gifts for our friends and family, taking advantage of all the sales, and where we take stock of how our finances are looking at the end of the year. So that gets me to thinking about the last time that the economy really failed miserably. Back in 2008, with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, that signaled the ushering in of a dark era in the economy. One of the consequences of all of those collapses was a lack of trust in our institutions, in our financial institutions. And so as a result, a person or a set of people with the pen name Satoshi Nakamoto wrote a white paper that was made public in October of 2008, in which he, she, or they described a whole new way of thinking about financial and other types of security, blockchain. I've been working on a series of lectures for the great courses called How Technology is Shaping How We Think. We're going to go into the studio in a couple weeks to film those lectures, and the course will be released sometime in probably mid-2020. And so one of the lectures I've been writing is on blockchain and how it could or has the potential to change so many different ways in which we engage in trustful relationships or trustworthy relationships. People are calling it potentially the Internet 3.0. And if the first instantiations of the internet were all about information, then blockchain is all about trust. But hang on a minute, you might be thinking, a lot of the information about one of the uses of blockchain, Bitcoin, has been about its volatility and the fact that it doesn't seem to be very trustworthy, at least not a great place to invest your money at this point if you don't know what you're doing. So to help me separate fact from fiction, to figure out exactly what is blockchain and what is its potential, I wanted to talk to an expert. And so I chose Michael J. Casey, who's a senior advisor at MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative. He was also a columnist for The Wall Street Journal and has written for many other publications. And he wrote a book with Paul Vigna called The Truth Machine, The Blockchain and the Future of Everything. Michael Casey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. 
Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with the problem that blockchain was designed to solve. You know, we think about the internet as being this big, huge repository of information, but not a very trustworthy one. So can you tell me a little bit about what the first Nakamoto paper, you know, made it, made it what problem it tried to solve? Well, it's interesting the way you frame the question because um, it, it sort of presupposes that there's, there was this concept called blockchain that was first created and everything else was built on top of it. it, it the way that, uh, at least in the popular nomenclature, the word blockchain has emerged is something that was almost discovered, which isn't right either, but as an element of um, the problem that Satoshi Nakamoto was trying to solve, which was really about money. He he, you know, he was really focused on trying to create a digital currency, he understood, or she or they, let's be clear, we don't know exactly who Satoshi Nakamoto is, that you know, money is a just a recording system. It's a mechanism for uh, exchanging something of value, but that you need to create a system that um, allows for that recording system, which is ultimately a ledger or a system for exchanging uh, symbols of value, so, to be organized in such a way that nobody can replicate it, nobody can change it. Without that, money doesn't exist, right? So money always has to be, if I give you a dollar, you, you want to make sure that I, I'm not going to take that same dollar and give it to somebody else. And that might seem like a really, really complicated, strange way to think, but it's it's the problem of the internet because if I want to, you know, when I send you a PDF, I'm not relinquishing my PDF, I'm sending you a copy of that PDF, right? So if we think about money, you can't have counterfeit digital concepts. You needed a system to be able to record all of those exchanges, that's the function of money, and to do so in a way that nobody could control. And this matters because, you know, the internet and, uh, well, banking as well, just, you know, all these systems of exchange we have have these big intermediaries in the middle uh, who we have to trust to, to actually act on our behalf because neither you or I will necessarily trust that we are not replicating that amount, right? We need somebody to be able to keep track of that records. And how do you do that in an environment where, you know, you don't know who's on, who's on the other end? How would you, how could, how might you create a system that is recording that in a decentralized way so that nobody in particular, neither you or the recipient or vice versa, or the ledger keeper in the middle has the power to change the ledger. And that's that's the core idea of what he's trying to do because that gives you a very different idea of money than what we're used to. It, it, that becomes a digital version of something that neither a government nor a bank as the intermediary can have any influence on that role. So that's what blockchain was created for as an element of Bitcoin that solution. And then we just came along and said, oh, <laughs> this function of recording things in a decentralized way can apply to more than just a, a currency. It, it's, it, it's in fact the way that data is tracked. It's the way that energy is, is, is recorded. The ledger keeping function is everywhere. It's a fundamental part of our economy. So the idea that we now might be able to create a decentralized ledger keeping system was, uh, you know, was just really important. So that's that's where you know this kind of push against the big banks, as I as I understand it, was one of the driving forces between behind Nakamoto's original paper. You know, with the collapse of the economies, and and maybe that was just coincidental, uh, or maybe it was causal. I, I don't know. You you know this much better mm, than I well, do. Well, we don't know him or her or she or they, right? So we don't right. quite know what was going on right. going on in their minds. But clearly, the coincidence was was certainly become important in retrospect. Absolutely. 
And so this kind of distrust of the previous ledger keepers uh, seems like something that has become really kind of important in the last 10 years, although for the last, you know, for a long time before that, it seemed that we were moving more and more towards a society where we were we were trusting ledger keepers, you know, we were and, and in fact, the internet, which provided these marketplaces, I mean, I, you know, people just initially were not interested in doing financial transactions on the internet. <laughs> so what do you think changed in terms of um, this kind of desire to now create a number of these ledger based systems that are decentralized? I think that's the point that I'm trying to get at is, you know, why should it be decentralized? So let's let's look at two let's look at in two buckets, right? So one is money and, and finance, and I think that obviously um, two thousand eight was absolutely critical. I, I like to tell people, you know, Lehman Brothers was a ledger keeping problem, right? The the, the the fact that we we didn't know the value of all of these uh, multiple rehypothecated, resold, recollateralized, rebuilt multiple, multiple layers of credit and debt outstanding obligations to each other, this incredibly complex web that became the systemic risk that evolved into the crisis, that kind of huge ball of wax was not comprehensible to anybody because we were having to trust individual ledger keepers, multiple versions of them, keeping their own version of their ledgers, not everybody else's ledgers, just their own. And that just, the opacity of the whole thing just showed it for what it was, right? Lehman Brothers told us that the value of X was X, but in fact it was Y, right? So centralized ledger keeping and its failure, I think, has always been there. We've always had it from a, you know, a property registries across the developing world are not trusted sufficiently so that poor people are able to take a, a, a deed that is supposed to represent their their claim on their home and turn it into a mortgage because the banker doesn't trust that that deed can, is being appropriately recorded. There's a, there's a fundamental problem in record keeping everywhere. Trusted third parties have always failed. It's just that in some societies where you have more trusted, reliable institutions, they work better. So, so banking and finance has always had this problem. It just reached a climax, one could say, in 2008. That's the finance side. Now, the other side is really interesting because, as you say, yeah, I think you're right. We we actually invested more in ledger keepers as the internet came along for the single purpose of managing the internet's data. And we got Google and Facebook and Amazon and you know, uh, Tencent and, and Alibaba in, in China, right? These guys are absolutely uh, the sort of central intermediaries of the financial system. And that's because... In some respects, my, most is my personal take. We didn't understand <laughs> that uh, what we were actually trading on across the internet was um, a form of, of money, and, and that uh, you know, b- because it wasn't money, we were just sort of treating it openly. But it turns out that the only way we were going to trade this this valuable thing, which is data, we needed intermediaries in the middle to sort of make sense of, sense of it and order it and, and, and extract value from it. We basically handed over. The, the keys to the kingdom to these these large, large, large intermediaries that grew out of it because we didn't have a system for how to manage this, what I would say is value exchange system, which is kind of a de facto form of money. You know, data is kind of like money, right? So we we built these guys up and then we realized, oh my, oh my goodness, this data is actually really valuable and we've handed it over to all of, all of them. 
Um, and so now there's a backlash, right? It's, whether it's Cambridge Analytica or whether it is, you know, sort of greater concerns about, you know, censorship on the internet or, or just the role that these huge um, intermediaries managing our content and our data are playing in our lives. And if you've read Shoshana Zuboff's fabulous book, Surveillance Capitalism, it tells you the problems we're in. People are starting to see that we've created a problem of centralization. Not many people quite think of it as a ledger keeping role, but that's what it is. That that's really what you know Facebook and Google are. They're ledger keepers. So right now it's a confluence of the two. We've got a financial, you know, the lingering effects of the financial crisis that may happen all over again on the finance side. And we've got a recognition that the internet, that's this key component of it, is also built around the same problematic, fragile, centralized ledger keeping systems. So one of the things I find most ironic about the sort of very new history of blockchain is that you know, we think of it as now this very strong, the Fort Knox of ledger keeping is decentralized. It, it can't be broken. And then you have like the Mount Gox failure and, you know, this this notion that a lot of people think it's crazy to buy Bitcoin because you don't you're not you don't, you don't even have any guarantee that that money is there. So before we get to like why it failed, I, I'd like to hear from, from in your words, sort of what is the blockchain or what, you know, like Give us a kind of overview of what makes it so secure and why we should trust it uh, over an intermediary. Well, we have to be careful when we say the blockchain. I mean, we, we use that phrase in the title for our book, but in some respects, what we're talking about when we say the blockchain in that sense is it's almost like the wheel, right? The concept. Um, because there's multiple blockchains and, and some of them are far more secure than others, without a doubt. You know, I, I think Bitcoin's a good place to, to start to understand why it matters, what it is not because it's necessarily the perfect blockchain or the perfect solution to all of our problems. There's all sorts of issues with it. Uh, but it is, it's the most secure and it is, it's built around, it's, it's the truest version of what we mean when we talk about this decentralized blockchain model. Again, it doesn't mean it's the right solution for the world, but it's the truest way to think about it in that it, the ledgers, the ledger is maintained by multiple computers who that are owned by people who are acting purely in their own self-interest, and that's a unique situation because one should be incentivized to basically um, defraud the ledger if that's the case. If nobody else knows who I am, right? This is a what we call a permissionless system. So there's nobody saying that you know Indra, and Michael, and this person, and so forth, and so forth. We're all the ones running the ledger. No one knows who we are. You are. Uh, pseudonymous you've got no recognition of identity so if that's the case so no one who knows who i am i should be able to just basically fraudulently enter transactions in my own interest so that i can double spend right this idea of being able to take a dollar once and then spend a dollar twice i should be able to do that i would be able to do that because nobody could catch me so how is it that, that we create a system that therefore incentivizes everybody not only to maintain the ledger but to do so honestly and that's what the the, the blockchain as it was integrated into Bitcoin was developed to do. So what it did was create um, an incentive an incentive system coupled with a cost system. And the incentive system was if you if you do this work, if you if you do what's required to stay honest and try to keep building this thing, you have an opportunity like everybody else to be part of an ongoing lottery of uh, the distribution of this thing of value, which is Bitcoin. So you're going to earn Bitcoin if you're going to be a good validator. Now how am I going to be keeping them all honest? In Bitcoin's case, it was through a consensus mechanism, a, a means of, of showing a proof that I am actually 
uh, doing the amount of hard work that's needed to get this. And in Bitcoin's case, it's called proof of work. Proof of work basically um, forces every computer that wants to participate in that lottery to do uh, an enormous amount of almost randomized computation. So there's a there's a, a mathematical puzzle that each Bitcoin miner, that's what they're called, uh, needs to do. And um, it, it, it gets harder and harder the more entities join into that process so that you're always constantly having to, 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 to spend resources. And you spend resources by being using up electricity or by using up um, you know, computational resources that go into this puzzle. And once you've proven it, um, you know, you're effectively allowed to participate in the consensus. Uh, but you're not going to join on the ledger unless you also trust the other guys who have done it. And so you got what you do is just, you're constantly validating the prior uh, block winner, the prior the prior ledger ledger keepers work. And if you if you if it's all validated, then you will actually join yourself to that same ledger. So there's this constant process of checking each other's work, of being incentivized by Bitcoin, but of spending enough resources such that it's really an expensive exercise. It's like skin in the game. And the idea is that if you wanted to actually take over that ledger and go back and rewrite the history and enable yourself to pull off a major fraud, you would have to take over all of the, you know, a, a large chunk, 51% is the way it's described, of the computing power of the entire network. Because that way you would sufficiently win enough of that lottery to uh, be able to actually be able to go back and change your own work um, and, and, and manipulate the ledger. So it becomes really, really expensive because to take over 51% means an enormous amount of work. So it's actually this interesting process of cost and uh, incentive that in a way world, with world where there is no authority in the middle actually telling you whether you can or can't do something, everybody is nonetheless kind of compelled to act in, in an honest way. And that's the broad principle behind which other blockchains have been built as well. They're not, all of them are not permissionless. So sometimes they have this concept of a permissioned blockchain whereby there's an authority in the middle that's telling a whole lot of other, or all the members who they are and what they should do. And then they follow a consensus mechanism to make sure that each one's keeping honest. But there's a nap, it's a narrower field because it's it's a collective of, of known entities. And there's this other areas called proof of stake, which are built on, you know, you, you have to put money up front before you're allowed to participate in the validation. But all of these are all different versions of an attempt to impose a kind of a collective will on everybody staying honest without having a heavy-handed regulatory framework and control framework. That's the underlying aspect of the blockchain. Now, you talked about Mt. Gox before. That's a completely different thing, right? Now, it's helping people to get their heads around this because they say, hang on, how is this secure? How are you telling me this thing is secure? Well, Mt. Gox is just like a bank. Um, you know, it's taking in your money and you don't know where it is. It, it, they, these are the on-ramp and off-ramps to Bitcoin. That can sound like a very unsatisfying answer to people because you think, well, then, you know, as far as I know, all that Bitcoin is is a place to trade for dollars, right? But if you didn't need dollars, and this is where the concept is most interesting, if all you needed was Bitcoin, then you wouldn't need Mt. Gox. But Mt. Gox is a centralized entity. And so are so many of these other exchanges. And we're trying to fix that. People are building decentralized exchanges so that this exchange doesn't have custody of your 
uh, of your coins when it trades on your behalf. Um, and, and that's a really interesting development that we could talk about. But there's, you know, the, the bottom line is the ledger itself hasn't been corrupted. It's gone on and on and on, and nobody has has, has actually performed a, a proper 51% attack and changed that ledger despite the billions and billions of dollars that are wrapped up in it. But there have been hacks at the edges uh, because that's where good old human failings come in and, and, and badly managed, you know, databases and things that are actually adjunct to the, to the Bitcoin ledger itself. Bayer knows that behind every breakthrough are people who dared to move the world forward. It's human ingenuity that drives progress. Time and again, we keep doing the things that couldn't be done. The sky was the limit until we walked on the moon. It once took weeks to communicate, before it took a fraction of a second. So what's next? Bayer is working with farmers to shape the future of agriculture. Farms where all life grows together. Tools that help plants and farmers use less water. And crops that can help raise communities out of poverty. What we can achieve is simply an extension of what we can imagine, and we've been proving that for thousands of years. That's why Bayer is driven to find even better answers to today's best solutions. When we're brave enough to challenge what hasn't been done, we discover the science behind what's yet to come. That's science for a better life. Here in the Bay Area, we are no strangers to natural disasters. Wildfires seem to get worse every year, and there's certainly something that we have to think about. These kinds of seemingly unstoppable forces destined for causing destruction, you rarely see them coming. But every Thursday, Parcast Network investigates Mother Nature's most devastating catastrophes in the original podcast, Natural Disasters. They covered tsunamis, tornadoes, earthquakes, but those are just the beginning. Each episode explores the historical impact of a monumental tragedy, analyzing the effect it had on the people and places involved. In a recent episode, they covered the 2010 earthquake that hit Haiti that claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. Or do you remember in 1995, there was that heat wave in Chicago and 700 people died in just five days? Of course, we don't remember it, but we all know about the eruption of Mount Suvius, which buried the ancient city of Pompeii. So what was it like to live through these nightmares? Discover more in the ParCast original series, Natural Disaster. Visit parcast.com slash natural disasters or search for natural disasters in the Spotify app and listen for free today. I think it's so it's such a fascinating thing to learn about sort of just human nature by thinking about a lot of these problems. I mean, for one thing, you know, the way you're describing it, the bigger the ledger, the more work it takes to get the next little bit of value for the miners. Um, and therefore, also the, you know, the the incentive of keeping it safe increases too, because now they all they have to do more and more work. And, and then there's this other component. So I guess, and again, t probably totally misunderstanding it, but my understanding was that in Mt. Gox, it was the digital wallets that got stolen. So like if you, if you didn't want to do the work, you could buy Bitcoin and in order, and then it would be allotted to you. And then, you know, you had this, this name that was your kind of username and that was what, what was stolen. Is that fair to say? Yes. Well, yes, that's the digital wallets are it. But they think that the key, the key point about Gox and so many of these other exchanges is that they maintain a single digital wallet on everybody's behalf, right? Which is defeats the purpose really of what Bitcoin's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, so, that's, that's, you know, well, it, so, so, so well, it, it, it's just that we have no way of getting in and out of dollars, right? So, so what happens is, um, and now we may do, but the bottom line is back then and certainly for some time, 
if you go from the old world of fiat currency and try to translate it that into this other one, who does that exchange for you? Well, you need somebody who acts as a custodian because they will. It's the way it acts like a normal a, a current exchange does. That they take your money for you and they trade on your behalf, right? And what Gox did is they put it all in their own wallet. And then that yes, those wallets are vulnerable. Just as by the way, your your wallet is vulnerable if you have ten dollars in it, right? And you've got ten dollars worth of Bitcoin in it. And if you have if you haven't protected your private key, it, it's it's somehow been divulged to somebody. Um, that's the special password, if you like, that you need to access and move your funds around. If that private key is revealed, then somebody can just hack it. All, all that ownership of Bitcoin is, is is knowledge of that private key. If somebody else knows it, they've got access to it, right? So that's the way it is. And then there's this whole other industry that's being developed around better security for wallets and better better practices and all sorts of things to sort of try to keep a world in which people really know how to control their wallets carefully. And there's a lot of really interesting developments in that regard. But in the case of Mt. Gox and so many of the other ones, what happened is it wasn't that the wallets were necessarily more or less secure than any regular Joe's wallet. It's that they filled with massive amounts of money in them, which is, you know, it's almost like that was Mt. Gox's wallet. Of course, it was my claim on the wallet as one investor in that. I didn't personally invest in Mt. Gox, but I'm saying, you know, it, it, it's a, a it, what, it, what it was is the vulnerabilities of having a large amount of other people's assets in custody, which looks just like a bank or just like a custodial or anything like the existing world does. So what's really interesting is the attempt to try to allow for the functionality that a Mt. Gox or, a, you know, a crack and all these other, you know, the Coinbase, all the varying quality um, do for people in a way that doesn't actually require them to hold those assets on my behalf. And there's lots of really interesting solutions. That- yeah. So tell me a little bit about those. You know, if, if what do you see as kind of the future of it seems like this is kind of, you know, we learned a lot from that. <laughs> and so, yeah. So what are they? I love this topic. This is one of, I think decentralized exchange and something called atomic swaps is, is one of the most interesting aspects of this. So let's just break it down. Like one of the reasons why we need custody is because, again, it's just this problem of not trusting two, the two entities. The buyer and the seller don't trust each other. So you have somebody in the middle to trust. And the reason why that's the case is because when it comes to electronic exchange, there's no way in which we can probably resolve the core problem of uh, the, synchro- the, the asynchronicity of an exchange. Just think about a physical exchange. You have um, a can of Coke and I'm buying it from you. At some point, one of the two parties will always have both items in their hand, right? We can't time it so perfectly such that it would be the millisecond is so small that it wouldn't happen. At some point, you've got control. Obviously, that doesn't matter in the real world because it's just human exchange and we know what's going on and whatever, we trust each other. That's the way it works. But in an anonymous, decentralized environment, that power to be able to own both at one time is incredibly powerful. So what do we do? We have an intermediary in the middle who acts as an escrow agent who is charged with all sorts of regulatory requirements and so, on and so forth, and sometimes they're better under-regulated. Those essentially act as custodians. They also have network of, exchanges also have the benefits of network effect in the sense that they they they, they know where all the, the prices are. That's one of the reasons why we go to them because they're, they're a centralizing effect of all of those, all the liquidity that I need to try to tap a price. But this, this function of being the intermediary 
between that exchange for the purposes of synchronizing it is really important as well. So there's a technology called atomic swaps, which essentially means that the escrow function right, of an intermediary is no longer going to be performed by an entity, but by the network itself, by, by the blockchain. So what happens is that in a decentralized way, my funds and your asset, so that, or it might be funds and funds, it might be my dollars if they're, if they're in digital form and your Bitcoin in digital form, or it might be a share or a stock in one in digital form and, a, and Bitcoin in the other. Those get locked up, you know, as if in escrow. But not, but by by a smart contract that is run by the network, and the network is now the same. Smart contracts are basically a system whereby the computers that are executing the terms of a contract. So if this happens, then do that. Those computers are acting in the same sort of decentralized motivation, you know, incentivizing system that we just talked about for Bitcoin, in the sense that. No one, we don't quite know who's going to be able to do it, which one is going to do it. It's all, it's a lottery. It's a process. There's no one who can actually, I know that neither you or I are going to be able to change that contract and intervene in the escrow. So you're locking it up. And so now you have this potential for what they call an atomic swap um, in that, you know, neither party has any control at any given time of both of them. So that's the first, though that technology is now being built. We know what to do with that. And that's being, that's happening. That's one piece of decentralized exchange. Then there's this problem of liquidity. And so, you know, how do I get enough value in one place? You know, so that's what I get the best price. If I can't discover prices all over the world, it's going to be much harder than it is just to go to one place. So how do we get away from that problem? And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there as well about using the prices through a centralized system as a, as a indicator of price, but being able to exchange with others elsewhere so that you and I could do a deal based on the liquidity that we are pinging from somebody else and um, but still have this atomic swap arrangement to, to, to be protected against each other. All of this stuff is heavy cryptography, but it's, it's really, really important because you start to see how when we knit all these things together, we can start to imagine a world in which as we tokenize assets, which is something that is a common conversations going on around now. So real estate can be tokenized or, you know, rights to receivables could be tokenized, all sorts of things, whether they're intangible or tangible could be tokenized. They're now in digital form. Since they're in digital form, they can have software attached to them which can allow them to speak to each other and, and, and lock into these kind of arrangements where neither party can control. And we can think of whole new ways of moving value around the world that doesn't require the constant intervention of compliance officers and all of the intermediaries that we that we just need, but really pose impose massive friction and potentially corruption in our, in our global economy. So I want to remind our listeners that um, Michael Casey and Paul Vigna's book, The Truth Machine, The Blockchain and the Future of Everything is now available on paperback. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the way in which blockchain technology might actually be able to help the least privileged in our world, um, which is you know something that you talk about in your chapter, Blockchain for Good. 
Um, and, and sort of the, I, you know, I, I recently got my real ID in California, which I think is probably comes with some kind of chip that, you know, probably contains all kinds of data that I don't want people to have. And then you hear about Estonia, where like everything is digitized. And, you know, tell us a little bit about the ways in which this kind of technology might help uh, people who are in developing nations. Um, and, you know, or some of the risks of having so much inform- digital information, you know, available like now in these kinds of IDs. Right. Well, it sounds like you're, t- you're referring specifically to the problem of identity, which is a really interesting one. It's a really complex one as well, uh, because what goes into identity or as some would say, like attribute management, because identity implies very a, a complex definition of who I am. We use it as a proxy for for proving access to things in the world, and that, that identity is critical if you're going to, you know, get online or get a, a utility contract or what you know, open a bank account, whatever. And, and now there's this is conversation around. Hang on a second, we don't want all that data out there. What about if we just share, pass out our attributes rather than our full fire hose of information about who Michael Casey is? Right. So that that's just a terminology issue, <laughs> attribute management versus identity. There's all these really complex components to it all. How blockchain plays to that is is one one potential piece of the puzzle. And there's not everyone's convinced that it can do it, but the, the, the idea is like, you know, I who I am, at least in terms of what matters from a transactional perspective, right? Giving me access to things, um, is really um, a function of a compendium of data about me, things I've done. And so my, tr- my travels around the internet, my expenditures, my credit scores, all these sorts of things, are my transactional relationships with other people, my record of all of that, all of that goes into a kind of a proof that I'm reliable. It's, and then, in fact, these kind of algorithmic measures have been shown to be, in many respects, far more accurate than these very integrated approaches to credit scores and so forth, right? So the idea is that, okay, I accumulate all this stuff. That's one big piece of the digital, that's sort of this, my digital footprints, if you like, but I need to control them. Right? I don't want to have them out there and have them available. So how would I keep them under my own control in some sort of pod that nobody could touch? But then that's not very useful because I need to actually share that data with people who I want to go and access to things. But if I do that, if I, if I just open them into my data room and say, here, go and fish around and find out about who I am, and then you can let me in, I've defeated the purpose because I've given you access to everything, right? So what, what we're talking about doing, what people talk about doing is finding ways to prove that you have access to that information, that, that, that this information, you know, it might be encrypted in a certain way. There's this concept called zero-knowledge proofs, which is very interesting, that I have that I have that access to it. And that's where the blockchain comes in, at least under the, some of the designs that people are coming up with. This notion that um, I prove that I own I own control of that private key. The, the, the one thing that is there is proven by this blockchain structure. Um, it's not that you put the data on the blockchain. The blockchain, in fact, a blockchain is a completely open, transparent system. So I don't want that data out there. What I want is the record of transactions of me using my key that I can prove I have control of because that key is the thing that I've been able to tap that that data pool to share with you. So I can say, hey, you can I can prove this is this is this is I am the person in control of this data, basically. And therefore, as I parcel it out to you in a piecemeal way, 
um, you can have proof that I have control over it and therefore that it's me. There's a whole lot of other many other factors that have to go. Who's going to attest the data? What has it fit within our regulatory structure? All sorts of things. It's not an easy thing. But there's a lot of really interesting work being done in it. And in some respects, it's the holy grail. If we can get that, then yes, there's people in the developing world to bring it back to that question who, you know, two billion people who don't have access to state ID because it's not reliable or it's not trusted enough, who may instead be able to use their mobile phone activity in an encrypted way to nonetheless prove that they're a reliable enough person to have a bank account. And so we resolve many of these problems in that, in that way. You know, it can go all sorts of directions because people are talking about putting biometrics on there and so forth. But does that become a risk? You know, there's a whole, there's, there's, it's, it's complicated. I know that doesn't, it's not a perfect answer, but um, blockchain certainly, I think, has one element of the solution to a very complex problem. There's a whole lot of other areas, I think, that blockchain can be valuable for good that don't necessarily involve this type of identity question, though, like asset registries, for example. I'm very interested in how we might, I have, in fact, we have a project running out of MIT that um, is trying to reduce the cost of raising capital for building microgrids in a place that wouldn't otherwise have a way for me to prove the reliability of that asset and be able to seize it as an investor if I had to. Uh, we're now thinking of ways to use the blockchain and tokenized um, transfers of both value and access to electricity as a way to kind of automatically control the flow of that and therefore significantly protect investors who wouldn't otherwise have protection and in the process drive down significantly the cost of access to finance itself. So it's kind of creating alternative collateral systems and all the things that we take for granted in how we raise and you know, raise money in the, in, the, in the traditional credit world, maybe we can find, you know, remote ways to do that with this technology. And, uh, you know, putting the entire uh, title insurance business uh, out of business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Title insurance, that's a, that's a great example, right? Because there's a permanent record, a permanent auditable trail that exists right there instantaneously on the blockchain. And so if you have, um, yeah, property title that is just there, yeah, you don't need the insurance. You don't need the title search. It's, it's automatic. You're absolutely right. So in the just a couple of minutes we have left, uh, what do you think is kind of the, the most profound way that block, blockchain or its technology or as its subsidiaries as you've described them uh, is going to change sort of how we behave as humans? I think it's going to break down institutions. That, that I think that, so I think our organizational structures are going to change. <laughs> Uh, right now, we have very hierarchical models of what the company looks like, what a business, what a what a government looks like, what our money, who controls our money. Um, all of that um, could get flatter, it could get more horizontal. It's not necessarily um, a good thing, but it's just the way things could go. Because um, you know, it's not that I will rely on those. You know, if those institutions get basically disintermediated by a decentralized trust network, which is what the blockchain is, then I don't need them. I don't need this trust in that system. And so, yeah, ultimately, I think, and I always phrase it this way because I, I don't, I don't want to come across as just a, you know, blockchain is going to fix everything kind of guy. But um, I think the framework of thinking about decentralized systems that blockchain allows us to imagine is really where we have to go, whether we like it or not, because we have an incredibly decentralized already system. Um, 
our global capital moves around the world in seconds and we don't know who's moving it. We have the internet is is at the architecture level, at the data exchange level is, is decentralized, at the value exchange level is very centralized. And we're now learning that the combination of those two is quite horrific. Again, read Surveillance Capitalism. It's the scariest book you'll read for some time. I always tell people you should read it with a stiff drink in, in, in your hand. Um, but we need to fix this problem, right? Because Surveillance Capitalism is about control of human beings and losing free will because the, the, the intermediaries that have positioned themselves as the all-important ledger keepers of our data exchanges are essentially able to turn that back upon us through as you know this behavior modification that is 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 really kind of the way the system works so we need to build something else <laughs> that that allows us to maintain the world that we've created whether we like it or not this decentralized internet world exchange information with each other um, but but not have to rely on these guys in the middle so that in the end drives us towards a much flatter structure um, i think new power bases emerge in the middle of it but we really start to think quite differently about the way we organize society that that's really the most powerful thing about this well on that note thank you very much for being on inquiring minds michael casey thank you so much andrew i really appreciate it so i hope you found that enlightening and that you're a little bit more informed about where to put your money whether it's in bitcoin or otherwise that's it for another episode thanks for listening and if you want to hear more don't forget to subscribe if you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. We don't take Bitcoin yet, but maybe in the near future. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rehala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you soon. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.